if you could ask God for one thing, and you know that he would give it, what would you ask for? What would your one request be? I think our answers to that question reveal a lot about our own drives and desires in life. Maybe you'd ask that God would bring back a loved one who has passed away. Maybe you'd ask for better health or a more stable bank account or the salvation of a wayward child. Or perhaps you'd ask for fame, prestige, authority, for glory. This morning, we're going to conti- uh, continue in our study in the book of Mark by considering two different scenes where people approach King Jesus and make their one request known to him. We'll see a negative example marked by pride and vainglory and self-promotion. And we'll see a positive example marked by humility and faith. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses 32 to 52 this morning. So far in Mark's gospel, I'm hoping at this point you can kind of repeat it back to me. Uh, We've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then over the past nine chapters, you know, Jesus has healed and taught. He's worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds. He's infuriated the religious leaders. He's shown mercy to the miserable. And yet, many have remained confused about his identity and mission. Some thought he was an impressive prophet. Others came to him for dramatic displays of power. The disciples themselves have been spiritually blind. In chapter 8, however, you remember that Jesus climactically revealed himself to be the Christ. uh, That is the King of Israel. And since then, he's been clarifying his own identity and mission as the Christ, as the Son of Man. So he is Israel's long-awaited king, but he is the suffering Son of Man who loses his life to save it, who takes up his cross for the sake of the gospel and then calls his disciples to join in his affliction. They are to be like their king. We saw two weeks ago that from marriage to kids to money, Jesus' disciples are to look to him as their great example and reward. Thus, we arrive at our passage here in chapter 10. We'll have three points this morning. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited king who gives his life for the redemption of his followers. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited king who gives his life for the redemption of his followers. So read with me, beginning in Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, 
What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a great cr- and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is found in verses 32 to 34, entitled, The Suffering King. You notice in verse 32 that Mark states that they were going up to Jerusalem. Since chapter 8, when Jesus affirmed that he was the king, he was the Christ, and that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, they've been making their way closer and closer to the capital city. You know, Jerusalem was significant because it was the the royal city of Israel. King David had originally conquered it, so it was known as the city of David. King David ruled from it for 33 years. And it was the place where the Lord had promised that the Messiah, David's offspring, would be enthroned forever to rule over his enemies and to save his people. That's just what Becca read for us this morning. That's just what Psalm 132 Uh, this morning that Zach read, was referring to. It's where all the action would take place according to the Old Testament. And so as they approach this city, it's clear that Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd know that something dramatic is about to take place. You know, that's why verse 32 says the disciples were amazed and the crowd afraid. Now that they're getting closer, could God's promises and David's heir to the throne, could it finally be coming true? 
has Jesus, the Christ, finally come to liberate the nation of Israel, defeat her enemies, and usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace? Well, it's because of the disciples' shock uh, that for the third and final time, Jesus explains to them what will actually take place in Jerusalem. He's done this in chapter 8. He's done this in chapter 9. And now we see his final prediction here in chapter 10. Look at verse 33 with me. Jesus reiterates the point. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus has to repeat himself three times because this is the exact opposite of what the disciples expected. You know, the disciples, or rather the Messiah, was expected to crush his Gentile enemies, to save Israel. And here Jesus states that he, the Messiah, would be crushed. And that this would take place as Jews and Gentiles colluded together, conspired against him. This was the exact opposite of what they were hoping for. Does this invalidate Jesus' claims to be the Messiah? Well, no. Jesus is Israel's king. Peter was right when he said that you were the Christ in chapter 8. But instead of ruling as king from a glorious throne, which everyone expected, Jesus had come to establish his kingdom from a bloody cross. As Jesus and his followers came closer and closer to Jerusalem, it was becoming clearer and clearer for those who had eyes to see that Christ's kingdom and his kingship and his followers were to be very different than what the world expected. You know, I don't, I don't think we should overlook the fact that verse 32 mentions Jesus at the head of the crowd. Do you see that? In the face of imminent suffering, Jesus doesn't cower at the back. He rather strides ahead, confident in his Father's plan and obedient to his Father's will. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a model of trusting God and submitting to his plan. Even that plan involves personal pain and sacrifice. Sometimes God's call on our lives involves suffering, sacrifice at great cost to ourselves. Sometimes that's God's plan for us. It was certainly God's plan for Jesus. Uh, Perhaps God is calling you to that kind of confident trust in the midst of ongoing trial, even this morning. Uh, Brothers and sisters, be encouraged by Christ's example of trusting his heavenly father, of walking in obedience and trust. Be encouraged by it and follow it. Yet, is this what Jesus' disciples had signed up for? You remember back in chapter 1, when they decided to follow Jesus. Were they aware of the suffering that awaited their master and their own very lives? This brings us to our second point in verses 35 to 45 entitled, The Serving King. Immediately after Jesus has explained the 
literally excruciating suffering that he's about to undergo. How do the disciples respond? James and John come to him with a special favor to ask. You notice the audacity of their request in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And if your kids come to you asking that, you know that <laughs> there's some trouble afoot. This is bold. After learning of their Messiah's incredible humility and suffering, uh, what could these disciples want? Perhaps they're going to ask for greater faith or more resolute courage in the face of ongoing trials, in the midst of imminent affliction. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you in verse 36? And you see their answer in verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. You see, James and John had their sights set on glory. They wanted power and fame and fortune. And Jesus was the means to their self-serving ends. For James and John, they seem to have completely missed the point, uh, just as we've seen in previous weeks, haven't we? So Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Despite all the time that they had spent around Jesus, James and John remind us that it's possible to spend a long time around Jesus and around Jesus' followers to know some true things about him, yet to completely miss the boat. Friends, don't mistake proximity to Jesus and to his people with intimacy with the Savior. Uh, the brothers wanted Jesus to be glorified, but they also wanted to get in on that glory. You know, they wanted to be the vice president and secretary of state, as it were. But Jesus reminds them and us that the way to, the, the way to glory for the Christian as for Christ himself, is always through suffering. There is no shortcut. Do you remember the one person who offers a shortcut? The devil. He says, I'll give you all these kingdoms, all their glory. You just bow down to me. Christ reminds us, it's better to suffer than to sin. Because there will be glory. Glory. We have to go through the road of affliction. The pattern of Christ's own life is first the cross and then the crown. So Jesus says in verse 38, Are you able to drink the cup and to be baptized with the baptism that I'll endure? You know, and again, it's just, it's painful. The disciples still don't get it. They're like, yeah, we got this. They think Jesus is saying, are you, like, glorious enough to be able to drink my golden goblet, right? What all the glory that I'm about to experience, are you able to take all that in? And they're like, yeah, we're, we got this. What is Jesus actually referring to? Well, regularly in the Old Testament, we read of the cup of the wrath of God. So Isaiah 51, 17 states, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And Jesus' baptism likely refers to the waters of judgment that sinners must endure. So think about how God's waters judged the wicked men of Noah's day. And God's waters judged Pharaoh's army as they plunged in after the Israelites. And Psalm 69 verse 2 reads, I've come into deep waters, the flood sweeps over me. This is the suffering and judgment that awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 39 that it also awaits his followers after him. You see, the suffering that Jesus was going to endure was not just suffering at the hands of the Gentiles and the Jewish religious leaders. Friends, do you know the apex of his suffering? It was the very wrath of God. It was not mere spear and nails that hung him to that tree. It was the very curse of God do sinners. That is where Jesus was heading. Jesus says this is the suffering that awaits his followers. Uh, He says, you know, you will drink the cup and you will be baptized. But we should know there is a difference between Jesus' suffering and our suffering, right? The cup that we drink, the baptism that we undergo. Uh, Jesus' sufferings would atone for the sins of the whole world, right? While our suffering, the disciples' sufferings, would testify to that death. He accomplished salvation through his death. Uh, Their trials, trials, our trials, point to that salvation, Indeed, as these disciples humbly and joyfully, as we take up our crosses, we bear witness to a source of joy that mockery and persecution and slander and even death cannot touch. And so, friends, it bears repeating, I know, but just that Christians are not exempt from suffering. We follow a crucified Savior. His lot is ours, and ours is His. There are some false teachers on TV and the internet who would like you to believe that if if you become a Christian, your life will suddenly become easy and pain-free. You know, perhaps if you give enough money to their ministry or if you have enough faith, your sorrows will simply melt away. You'll achieve health and wealth and prosperity. But it is not so. This seems to be exactly the type of discipleship that James and John desired in these verses. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away, right away. But friends, if you come to Jesus to get money or authority or glory, then you don't ultimately love Christ. You love those things, right? He is not your treasure, they are. He's just the disposable ladder that gets you there. And and that doesn't honor him. So friends, we follow Christ because he is our treasure and our reward, even as we just sang. Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. Supremely, we love him. What is the end result of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us? And the new heavens and new earth, right? We will get glory and authority and it'll be all these great, perfect bodies, everything will be wonderful, right? What is the highest good that we're going to have there in heaven, though? 
it will be him. It will be knowing and seeing our Lord Jesus face to face, being in his presence, enjoying his fellowship for all eternity, unobstructed by sin and suffering. In this life, though, don't be deceived. We will face suffering. And far from this error being contained to the two sons of Zebedee, you see what verse 41 says. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Right? They're upset. They're jealous because James and John beat them to the punch. So Jesus calls them all together. If he had earlier addressed them in chapter 9 about how to lead Jesus' followers, here his instruction about leading Christ's followers is even more explicit and clear. What does leadership look like in the Christian community? Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the ones, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Friends, in this short section, we see the surprising nature of Christian leadership and Christian discipleship more broadly. We see the countercultural values of the kingdom of God. In the world's eyes, to have authority and to be a ruler is to exalt yourself by the subjection of others, right? This demonstrates your prowess, your ability, your authority. You magnify your own name. The Gentiles consider this greatness. And this is what we see in today's society, isn't it? Everyone is striving for leadership because leadership is primarily considered as a badge of personal accomplishment, rather than an act of humble service. You know, promotion at work or in society is an expression of your greatness. Lowly behind-the-scenes work is ignored or mocked as insignificant. But it shall not be so among you. Among Jesus' disciples, the humble are praised and the lowly are rewarded. It's the servant-hearted ones who receive their commendation from the Lord. And so notice that Jesus does not stop his followers from pursuing greatness. Do you notice that? He doesn't stop his followers from pursuing greatness. He rather redefines it. Greatness among the Gentiles is self-exaltation. But greatness among God's people is selfless service of others. So Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be great? I hope you do. Do you want to be great? Well, then serve others. Look for ways to bless those around you in small but practical ways. Whether at work or with your family or in this church or in your community. 
serve others. Right, here at this church, we've joked about it, but a church plant gives you lots of opportunities to serve others and serve behind the scenes. Uh, look for ways to help others spiritually by meeting up to read the Bible with one another and perhaps mentoring a younger believer. Uh, sacrifice your time by going to the Lord and praying quietly every morning. Think about that. Nobody's going to praise you for that. That's not something that you're going to, you should, broadcast on social media. The cable news is not going to draw attention to that. But that's an act of service where you can love and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, give generously. Perhaps arrive early on Sunday mornings to help set up chairs, to help set up the audio equipment. There, there's just any number of ways where when we see needs around us, we could just seek to serve. We don't have to ask permission. You just go and serve. In most of these ways, there will be no public approval or accolades. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? For in all these ways, as we selflessly serve others, we exemplify true greatness. So, brothers and sisters, don't believe the lie that true greatness is found, found in approval from bosses or accolades in the papers or attention on social media or pats on the back from your family. You know, if you want to be first according to the world's standards, your flesh will tell you exactly what to do. Exalt yourself, parade your righteousness and accomplishments before others, rule others, use them for your glory. Even apostles like James and John are prone to this kind of thinking. We all know how to pursue worldly greatness because it comes oh so easily to us. And to be first among the citizens of the kingdom, we are called to die to selfish desires and to serve others. In our ministry to one another, uh, just to get real practical, we should be more needs-driven than personal satisfaction-driven. Right? So this is just a guess. But my guess is that no one here absolutely positively loves and longs and looks forward to as the highlight of their week unloading Dan's car for hospitality supplies. I don't know. Maybe somebody here does. And if you do, God bless you. But I'm so grateful to everyone who does show up early to unload and set up, not because, you know, God wrote in the sky, thou shalt serve in the setup team, but because you saw a need and you wanted to meet that need. Yet this dying to self and taking up our cross by being a slave of all is hard, is it not? Right? It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally to us. So how does Jesus motivate us? Verse 45. For. Do you see that first word? It is really important. With that for... Jesus is saying that you should be a servant of all because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, this is our motivation. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the first and highest, the greatest, who most deserved to be served and who could have rightfully lorded his position over us. This king came to serve, even us peasants. 
Trinity Church of Bedford, this is the greatest act of humility and service the world has ever seen. There is no higher being than God, right? So he's infinitely great. Thus, for Jesus to come down, he bridged an infinite distance, infinite lowly in his service. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone had the right to be served, it was the Lord Jesus. He's the glorious Son of Man, the eternal Son of God. Yet even he, high and exalted as he is, lowered himself to serve us. And so we have no excuse to not serve one another, right? Are you tempted to think you're too important to serve others? Praise God Jesus didn't think that way. Love it, what a wonderful example of serving others we have to follow. When pride tells us we're too important to serve in small and humble and forgotten ways, let's remember Christ's example in humility. Yet how specifically did he serve us? Well, we see there at the end of verse 45. Look there. He gave his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus didn't serve merely by becoming a human. He didn't serve merely by becoming a carpenter, living a humble life. No, he served by giving up his very own life. This sentence sentence is so crucial because it explains why Jesus was going to the cross, right? Back in chapter 2, he said the bridegroom's going to be taken away. He's given a few more hints along the way, these three explicit predictions, but he's never told us why he's going to the cross. What's he doing there until now? It's because his life was a ransom. Uh, The word ransom literally refers to the price one would pay to buy back a slave or a captive. And so the price required to liberate and free someone from bondage, right? Think of all those hostage movies. What's the ransom price? Well, the ransom for many was the very life and death of the Son of God. And so if you're here this morning as a Christian, do you know what was required to liberate you from your sin? What was the price that had to be paid to deliver you from the tyranny of the devil? Do you know what was given up to save you from the wrath of God and the fear of judgment? The very life of the Son of Man. Your salvation, my salvation, it required the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as our ransom, the price required for our freedom. Such is his love for you, brother and sister. I love Dan's comment last Sunday night. Uh, He said that the opening to the fifth verse of my worth is not in what I own. Talking about my value fixed, my ransom paid. That's what the cross shows us. Our worth and our unworthiness. Such is Christ's love for you, 
that he would shed his blood to enjoy all eternity with you in his heavenly home. Notice that Jesus, verse 45, at the very end, he gave his life for or instead of many. The Greek word here at the end of verse 45 is emphatic. It was his life instead of our life. The point is that it was either his life or your life. His death or your death. In his dying on the cross, Jesus endured God's judgment instead of all those who would trust in him. So friends, either Jesus will bear the wrath of God in your place and as your substitute, or you will bear it. Either he will pay the price for your sins, or you will. This is why it's so urgent for all who are non-Christians, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Because of our sins, we all owe a debt to God that our good works or church attendance could never repay. But Jesus humbly served by going to the cross as the innocent lamb of God to bear the wrath of God in the place of all who had trusted him. He would suffer instead of us. He paid the debt that we incurred. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. Here's in the grave victorious that death did not have the final word. That he was innocent. That his payment, as it were, had been accepted. This is why if you're not a follower of Christ, whether young or old, you should trust in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And so in light of Christ's great sacrifice, how should we respond? Well, we come now to our third and final point in verses 46 to 52 entitled, The Coming King. If James and John responded to the truth of Jesus' kingly identity with selfish ambition and greed, here we see the opposite. Here we encounter holy ambition and humble discipleship. So in verse 46, they're basically in the town next door to Jerusalem. They're getting really close to the desired destination. And in verse 46, we meet Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. You know, this man is a lot like the little children we've seen in previous chapters in Mark. He's low on the social totem pole. He's an outcast from society and generally looked down upon by others. He was distinctly not great according to the world standards. Yet when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, verse 47, says he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's going on here? Well, in another startling reversal in Mark's gospel, we see that this blind man sees the truth about Jesus in a way that everyone else was blind to. While Jesus' disciples and the crowd's had the benefit of literally seeing all that the Lord Jesus had done, uh, Bartimaeus must have only heard the reports. And yet he knows. He sees who Jesus is. Despite opposition from the crowd, he continues to cry out in verse 48, Son of David, have mercy on me. This language is startling. And it's startling because it's unprecedented. 
in Mark's gospel. Jesus has typically referred to himself as the son of man. The crowds typically refer to him as teacher. Only once in Peter's confession that you are the Christ have we seen the office of king explicitly ascribed to Jesus by another person. Yet here, this blind beggar turns out to be the most enlightened of any of the characters we have met thus far. And that's just the way God works, isn't it? He loves to use the weak and the lowly things of this world to shame the strong. He loves to have a blind man rejoice in his son while the religious leaders and Jesus' disciples are confounded. When Bartimaeus says, son of David, he's clearly referring to the promises the Lord made to David in 2 Samuel 7, which Becca read for us. Uh, there Yahweh said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Jesus, Bartimaeus recognizes that God's promises are finally coming true. David's son was finally going to David's city to take David's throne. God's people would be rescued from their enemies. They'd be united and restored under his gracious reign, and his kingdom would know no end. All this was coming true as Jesus embarked to Jerusalem, and the irony is that it took a blind man to see it. So Jesus calls the man to get up from beside the road and to come over. Uh, I love the man's reaction in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This guy's blind. He's dancing like he just scored a touchdown in the NFL. I mean, he's elated. Leaps with joy throws off his cloak with abandon, comes to talk to Jesus. So we come to the climax of our passage. How does Jesus respond? What does he say to this man? Look at verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Friends, does that question sound familiar to you? It's the same question Jesus had just asked James and John the same exact question. Yet while they answered with pride and self-promotion, Bartimaeus answers with humble faith. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Though blind, this man perceived Jesus' true identity. He was the suffering, saving Davidic king. And so Jesus shows mercy to this faith-filled man. As we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, this is how we should all respond to Jesus. With faith. Faith that he's in control. Faith that he's bigger than our circumstances. Faith that he's good. Faith that he can forgive our sins. Faith that he is who he says he is. Faith which will one day give way to sight.
But until that day, one of the massively important ingredients in taking up our crosses and denying ourselves is this faith that Bartimaeus shows. Again, one day it will give way to sight when we receive the crown. But in our suffering, we still walk by faith. That's what Bartimaeus here exemplified. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I wonder in what ways is God testing your faith in your life right now? In what ways is he calling you to trust him even in the midst of uncertainty and doubt? And though your circumstances may be harrowing, you can be sure that it is always right to put your faith in Jesus. And so as we conclude, look at that last sentence in verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Here we see the crucial difference between Bartimaeus and the two sons of Zebedee. Uh, Notice that both went to Jesus, both asked for Jesus' help, both want Jesus to do for them something that they could not do themselves. But what makes James and John's request a vice, but Bartimaeus' request virtuous? Well, it is that James and John were simply using Jesus as the means to their own ends. They were just like the crowds. No real love for the Lord. But for Bartimaeus, Jesus was both the means and the ends. Not only did he want Jesus to do something for him by healing him, he wanted Jesus to heal him so he could follow him on the way. Do you know what it makes it really, really hard to follow your king and savior on his journey to Jerusalem? Being blind. And so why does Bartimaeus want to see? So that he can get up off the side of the road and follow Jesus. So he can follow his king to his throne, worshiping him and adoring him as his king and his savior. (laughs) Though Jesus said, go your way, he doesn't go his way. He goes Jesus's way. Put another way, Bartimaeus wasn't just in it for the healing. He wasn't simply looking for improved health or a more comfortable standard of living. He longed to follow Christ. That is why he wanted his sight back. Unless we think that Bartimaeus had a rosy, unrealistic picture of who Jesus was, really is, and the suffering of the Son of Man. Uh, I think, as we conclude, Mark gives us two clues that Bartimaeus endures in faith. How, how do we know that he's, he's not like James and John, and you know, he just thinks Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, everything's going to be hunky-dory? Well, first, recall that we've already seen Bartimaeus face opposition in seeking to follow Christ. Back in verse 48, it says that many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Even in this early age, Bartimaeus knew that to follow Christ, you must persevere in faith 
and trust even in the midst of opposition. And second, back in verse 46, uh, do, you, do you know how Bartimaeus is introduced? I'll just literally render the Greek. Mark calls him the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Put, put another way, Jesus, or rather Mark, leads with, oh, this is the son of Timaeus. Oh, this is Bartimaeus. Why does Mark lead with that? Because it's likely that Mark's original audience knew Timaeus. It'd be like me saying, oh yeah, Curtis Cook's son. You guys know who that is. By referencing that, it appears that Bartimaeus' healing wasn't a one-stop wonder, but rather that as he followed Jesus in the rest of his life, he included others in that circle, such that his father was known to Mark's audience. It seems that his father, Timaeus, he himself had trusted in Christ and was known as a follower of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, what do your prayers reveal about your own priorities and desires? When you come to Jesus and you ask for things, what do you ask for? And why do you ask for it? Do you seek blessing from God fundamentally for your own comfort and advancement or to more faithfully follow Christ? In this passage, we see the dramatic contrast between James and John and blind Bartimaeus. The two sons of Zebedee wanted to use Jesus for their own selfish ends, yet Bartimaeus sought blessing not for his own comfort or ease, but that he might be a more faithful, obedient, and useful disciple. Though chastised and even persecuted by those around him, Bartimaeus cried out to his king for mercy and began to follow Jesus. May we all follow in his footsteps. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you use the weak and the lowly things of this world to shame the strong. We thank you for your compassion and your mercy on Bartimaeus and on so many of us here. On all of us here, we have enjoyed your mercy and grace and goodness and steadfast love. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you went to the cross, that you endured persecution and suffering to give your life as a ransom for us so that we could enjoy you for all eternity. Oh God, if there are any here who have not repented and believed, we pray that you would open their eyes, that they too would see and follow Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.